question you have is six foot eight. <laughs> and yes, I do believe in the prophetic gift of the Spirit uh, as well. So no, it's wonderful to be back here at the Church of the Resurrection. And a uh, church that is very, very uh, close to my heart, a uh, place that has, for me, been a real Beth El, a real house of God where I came in this building for worship many times and knew God is in this place. God spoke to me, um, God healed me, God convicted me, um, God showed me his kindness and his goodness um, through the word and the sacrament and the community uh, of his people. So it's great to uh, share this with you today, this worship. I was uh, praying as one does before one preaches, usually, hopefully, and and I was uh, I was praying to see what message uh, the Lord might lay on my heart for you. Yeah, I better check the watch. It's always dangerous if you put the watch there, but you don't look at it. Um, and um, so, as I was praying. Because I was given the freedom not to preach from a lectionary or a series, but to, to just speak from what God made on my heart. Um, the, I chose the passages that we read from the Old and uh, New Testaments. And the context in which sort of this message developed, which, which works in my heart, which uh, I find myself returning to in my thoughts and prayers, as I look at the state of our world, the state of our nations, uh, here in the United States, uh, in, in the United Kingdom, where my wife is from, also in Austria. And uh, it is not a particularly happy place. I mean, I don't know how you perceive DC these days, um, but at least looking from afar, it doesn't seem to be a particularly happy and harmonious place. Uh, I know for a fact that the United Kingdom isn't particularly happy and harmonious, and uh, the same is true in many ways uh, for Austria. And I've been thinking a lot about, uh, or a lot, a little bit, about these, these driving issues and why we, we are riven apart, why we are so divided as, as societies, as nations. And, and I think one of the key elements in it is the way we understand identity and the way we live out identity and the way identity shapes our politics and identity politics. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to read uh, Francis Fukuyama's book, I think it came out about a year or two ago, um, called Identity, the, the Demand for Dignity and the Politics of Resentment. And he has an interesting phrase in there, has many interesting phrases in there, including this one. The retreat on both sides into ever-narrow identities threatens the possibility of deliberation and collective action by the society as a whole. Down this road lies, ultimately, state breakdown and failure. And, you know, this is sort of, it's just hidden in this book that, that's a bestseller. And I'm like, okay, so down this road lies straight be, uh, state breakdown and failure. Um, and and as, as I'm trying to unpack, I mean, it's, it's worth reading the way he unfolds identity, tracing the modern concept of identity actually back to the Protestant reformer Martin Luther, and then through Rousseau and uh, Enlightenment and so on. It's, it's, it's a fascinating read, well worth reading. And, um, and, and this polarization, this kind of, this, this partisanship that, that rips us apart, 
Um, there's, I just came across today, actually, an article in the, in the current edition of National Affairs by Jonathan Rauch, who's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Um, and um, he, he talks about this increasing polarization and partisanship and says at one point in this article, again, very well worth re reading, it's called Rethinking Polarization. Here we reach an interesting, if somewhat surreal question. What if, to some extent, the increase in partisanship is not really about anything? To put the point in a less metaphysical way, what if tribalism as such is not ideological disagreement? Uh, what if, if tribalism as such, not ideological disagreement, is behind much or even most of the rise of polarization? What if emotional identification with a partisan team is driving ideology more than the other way around? A really interesting question. And, and then he goes looking after, uh, looking at two phenomena. One is effective polarization. That means uh, maybe what you believe in your ideology hasn't drifted apart further, but you think less of the other people, the other team, the other group that you have thought of before, so your affections have changed. Uh, and secondly, negative partisanship, which is just, it's not so much that we like our own team, but we detest the other. And so it's, it's more defined by, the, by a negative, by a common enemy. And uh, uh, it, it's interesting, uh, I recommend it uh, for reading, but what, uh, what made me think this ties in with the readings that I had chosen and the message that I felt were in my heart is this uh, penultimate uh, paragraph of his, where he says, so where does that leave us? In a swamp, but with a path out. We cannot change human nature. We're stuck with our Serengeti evolved selves, but we are rational creatures, capable of analyzing and understanding the forces that beset us and then capable of responding. Getting traction against effective polarization and tribalism will require some direct measures, such as civic bridge building. Uh, even more, it will require indirect measures, such as strengthening institutions, like unions, civic clubs, political party organizations, civics education, and others. Above all, it will require renorming, rediscovering, recommitting to virtues like lawfulness and truthfulness and forbearance and compromise. Strengthening institutions like unions, civic clubs, political party organizations, civics education and others. Notice the glaring absence of the church. It's not even on the radar. That the church, the church of Jesus Christ, could make a positive contribution to tribalism and to being driven apart, to factionalism, uh, to partisanship, it's not even on the radar. Now you might say maybe that's personal bias or institutional bias or, or it's secularism, but isn't it a tragedy that it's not even on the radar as an answer? to the problem that besets our society, to the problem that drives our cities, our nations, our world apart. And yet, I believe it's precisely the gospel of Jesus Christ and the daughter of that gospel, which is the church, which is 
where the answer, the most powerful, really the only persuasive and hopeful and realistic answer can be found. It is in this identity that is given to us in the gospel of Jesus that we find answers to what drives us apart. And I want to unpack this with you uh, over the next few minutes. I, I love that passage in Isaiah with, with which began, we began our readings because it is so surprising if you know ancient Near Eastern history, if you know Israelite history, you, you know that Egypt and Assyria are not known as Israel's best friends, to put it mildly. They are the two empires that are the archetypical enemies, worse even than Babylon. Egypt, the oppressor for 400 years who wouldn't let the people go. Egypt, who tried to wipe out the nation. And Assyria, that did obliterate the ten tribes of the north. And that threat was just building as Isaiah was prophesying and writing. And we read in the last verses in uh, Verse 23, in that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The land of Israel lies between the two. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and the Assyrians will worship together. They were fighting each other. In that day Israel will be the third along with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them saying, blessed be Egypt my people, Assyria my handiwork, and Israel my inheritance. Blessed be Egypt my people? I mean, hello, have you been reading? Have you been reading the Torah, dear prophet Isaiah? I mean, is this like dyslexia or what's going on? Egypt my people, and Assyria my handiwork? And Israel, my inheritance. And I think there you see breaking through like, like the early dawn of a, of, a, of a new thing that will break in, in fullness in the person of Jesus Christ. God become man, becoming one of us and reconciling us to God and one with another. Tribes with tribes, nations with nations, men and women, slave and free. And then it's worked out. You know, it happens. The center point of history happens. God becomes human. He lives among us as one of us. He dies for us. He is raised from the dead. And then the gospel goes forth, sent by the power of the Spirit. Men and women are preaching the gospel. And this identity, it's so so strongly worded, say, for instance, in this reading in Colossians 3, where um, the apostle writes, do not lie to each other, beginning in verse 9, uh, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator. So the old self is gone, there's a new self, and this new self is being renewed in a very specific direction, into a very specific image, into a very specific pattern.
pattern into the image of its creator, the image of Jesus, the Son of God. Here, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Wow! What a picture of the church. All these divisions, all these national divisions, religious divisions of the past, gender divisions, economic divisions, all these divisions are not relevant because they are transcendent in the church. They matter because our world matters and the world in which we live matters, but they are overcome in this new humanity that comes to place when men and women turn to Jesus Christ and when their identity is renewed and they are renewed in the image of their maker. And yet so little of that is often seen in my life, perhaps in your life, in our lives collectively as Christians, that somebody writing about how to overcome partisanship and division and barriers doesn't even begin to think that the church of Jesus Christ could make a positive contribution. What a tragedy. What a call for us to return to the gospel, to seek the Lord in prayer and fasting and repentance, saying, God, forgive us, rend our hearts, help us be that people of hope, that people of reconciliation, that people for others. You see, that identity, we, we, it is given to us. It is a gift. He, he, he goes on to say, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. So before he talks about ethics, he says, you have to know who you are before you live out that new identity. What's your new identity? You are God's holy people. You're holy. You're set apart. You're not common. You're very special. You're unique. You're bought at a price. You're priceless indeed. You're holy. You're set apart for God, chosen. And see, the great thing about chosen is that it doesn't depend on what you did and it doesn't give you any bragging rights. It is God who freely chooses out of his goodness and grace. You're chosen. He said yes to you. He said yes to you. You are chosen. Do you know you're chosen? He said yes to you. What a comforting, comforting message that the apostle here gives us by the Spirit. You're chosen Holy and dearly loved, dearly loved, dearly loved. Do you know that you are dearly loved? When you look into the mirror in the morning, perhaps better after coffee, you know, I mean, how do you feel when I say, hello, good morning, you chosen one, you holy one, you dearly loved one? You know, well, how do I, I mean, try it out. Say, good morning, you know. I don't know who you are. I'll still wash your face. And I'll tell you, you are holy. You are chosen. Uh, you are dearly loved. What does that do to us? If we know that this is who we are, a holy, chosen people, dearly loved, then we can close ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. I think the public square in Austria and in the UK and in America and many other places could do with a bit of that. Hmm? 
little bit of compassion, quite a lot actually, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. The church of Jesus Christ should be known as the place where people are like that, as a place of compassion, of kindness, of humility, of gentleness and patience. The people of Jesus Christ, you, me, his children, his followers, we should be known as compassionate, as kind, as humble, as gentle, as patient. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. I love that realism. You know, the apostle knows there will be grievances. And he says, therefore, bear them. Bear with one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Love. And see, I want to land on that love, dearly loved, dearly beloved. I want to give you an image for that identity. Jesus, that's my conviction theologically, scripturally, exegetically, Jesus needed to be very powerfully affirmed in his identity before he began his public ministry. Before Jesus began his public ministry, as you know, and as we read today, he submitted to the baptism by his cousin John, known as the Baptist. And as he stands in these waters of baptism, just coming up, soaking wet, the heavens are rent open. The Holy Spirit descends on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice comes from heaven saying, You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. That's the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Now when I tell you this story, when you picture it in your mind, where are you in that picture? You've probably seen drawings or paintings of it, maybe seen it in film versions. Well, where we typically are is we're on the banks of the river, Jordan. We're on the outside looking in. Now, you're biblically well-educated church, thanks to your clergy. What is the hope of glory? The hope of glory is one of your clergymen knows it, thankfully. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Who is a new creation? If anyone is in Christ, another one, the deacon knows it. Very good. You all know it. You all know it. You're just being humble. Um, Christ in you, the hope of glory. If anyone is in Christ, then he or she is a new creation. In Christ, that is a key way for the Apostle Paul to phrase what happens when we come to Christ, when we're born again, when the righteousness of God is given, imputed to us, when we, when we become new creatures. Christ in us, we in Christ. Now, if we really are in Christ, and if Christ really is in us, if that truly is the hope of glory, where can we also picture ourselves if we theologically meditate, theologically digest this scene of Jesus' baptism? If you're in Christ, and if Christ is in you, where are you in the picture? You're not on the banks of the river. You're in the river. On whom is the Holy Spirit descending? You're standing right where the Spirit is coming down. To whom is the Spirit saying, 
you are my beloved child. With you, I'm well pleased. You're in Christ. Christ is in you. The eternal love that God the Father has from ages before the beginning of time to eternity future, that very same love is directed, focused, not like a laser beam, but like a waterfall, straight to you in Christ. See, we're invited, we're to be caught up into the life of the Holy Trinity. That's why that doctrine of the Trinity is not some confused old council that handing down some mathematical impossibility, but it is dealing with the way God revealed himself in history. And it is so important for our spiritual lives that we understand Christ lives in us and he has sent his spirit to dwell in us. It is the spirit that testifies to our spirit that we are children of God and in that spirit we cry out, Abba, Father. And see the, the love that the Father is eternally pouring out into the Son by his spirit. And then that the Son is crying back, Abba, Father, to the eternal Father in the same spirit. That's not happening somewhere outside you, but if you are in Christ and if Christ is in you, you're caught up into this eternal mutual outpouring of love in God, the Holy Trinity. Now, I think that's a pretty strong basis for identity. I think that's a pretty strong rootedness in knowing your value and your worth and your dignity. That gives you an ability to not take offense easily, to love others to forgive others as you have been loved, as you have been forgiven. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. So this, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. And further, as Praying to the Father, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. See, the same love that the Father was speaking to his Son, I'm well pleased with you, you are my beloved Son, that was what launched Jesus into this ministry and where did the ministry end? On the cross. It was self-sacrificial. It was willing to give up privilege and power. It was willing to give up his life. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. So brothers and sisters, I pray, I really pray that that love of God would deeply touch your heart. That you would see yourself in that picture with Jesus, the heavens open, the Spirit descending on you, and the Father saying, you are my beloved child, you are my beloved daughter, you are my beloved son. I'm well pleased with you. You're in my son. And then also, 
that sending. You know, the next thing that happens for Jesus is the tempter coming, saying, if you are the son of God, and then, you know, if you are, if you are, so identity is contested. This identity will be contested. But it is a gift. And it is a gift to you, a gift to the community of Jesus, the church, and a gift to the world that is riven apart. We can come from a place of a strong identity without clenching our fists, loving, kind, humble. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you so much for your love. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be opened this evening. We would hear that testimony of the Spirit testifying to our spirit that we are children of God, crying, Abba, Father. We would hear your voice of affirmation that you love us, that we are your children. And I pray that being reconciled to you, we would reconcile one with another and we would be peacemakers. Peacemakers. in our time. I say, Amen, I want to say one more thing. Maybe you're here and you say, what is in the world is he talking about? Maybe you have never made peace with God. Maybe you don't know the love of God personally in your life. It is not difficult. All that is required is to give our small yes to God's big yes. He has already given it. It is over you. It is available to you. It is there. Just give you a small yes. Put your life into his hands. Trust him. And be caught up into that love, the eternal love that the Father has for the Son in the Spirit. Amen.